Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like expanding capacity for sustainable aviation fuel and biodiesel in Washington state and bringing massive new infrastructure online in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Today on The Argument, is critical race theory being taught to your kids? Better question, should it be? If you turn on cable news, there's a good chance you'll catch a segment on the biggest issue said to be threatening students these days. Not COVID or unequal facilities or guns, but critical race theory. It's the academic theory that race and racism aren't just about individual actors and actions. Critical race theory looks at the inner workings of bigger structures that foment and maintain gaps between different racial groups. In short, Racism isn't always burning crosses and using racial slurs. It's a normalized, systemic effort. Critical race theory got its start in the world of law, but as the story seems to go, it migrated to workplaces, the defense industry, and finally to schools. But did it? I'm Jane Coaston, and you've probably heard a lot of people arguing about critical race theory in schools. Either that a kid reading about the story of Ruby Bridges is being exposed to the dangerous theories of critical race theory, or that critical race theory isn't being used in schools at all. But my take is maybe one you haven't heard. I think it would be pretty okay if people used critical race theory to talk about race and racism in schools. But based on some of the lesson plans I'm hearing about that seem to be more about making white people feel bad than removing structural barriers to equal opportunity, I don't think that's what's happening. One of the most prominent voices against so-called critical race theory in education is Chris Rufo. He first mentioned the idea on Tucker Carlson almost a year ago. Now, one of his main jobs is leading the charge against critical race theory. He's a senior fellow and director of the Initiative on Critical Race Theory at the Manhattan Institute. And he's one of my guests today. My other guest, Rick Banks, researches race and law and strongly disagrees with Chris. And maybe with me. He's a law professor and co-founder and faculty director of the Stanford Center for Racial Justice. I think we're going to have some disagreements on this episode. Chris Rufo and Professor Banks, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. It's great to be with you. It's a pleasure. I've been looking forward to it. Excellent. I have also. So, Rick, I want to start with you. What is critical race theory? Well, the the idea of critical race theory has mutated uh, so that now I'm not sure what it means. Critical race theory, as I know it, originated within the legal academy, among law professors in particular, and more specifically, Derek Bell was a central figure in the development of critical race theory. And what critical race theory was, was a response to what we can describe as the failures of civil rights reforms. In other words, it was an attempt to answer the question of, you know, once we've ended slavery and we had Reconstruction and then we had a civil rights era, then we passed a lot of legislation and then the Supreme Court invalidated segregation. Once we had all of that happen, why did racial equality not result? And so critical race theory is a way to answer that question And it answers that question by reference to the centrality of race in the formulation of law 
and in the effects of loss. A really simple way to think about this question is to say, if the Supreme Court invalidated de jure segregation in Brown v. Board of Education in 1954, how is it that a full decade later, the Black kids were still in segregated schools? Critical race theory attempts to answer that question. The debate that we're having now in society, I don't really see as about critical race theory per se. We have laws that are being passed that prohibit the teaching of critical race theory in elementary schools or middle schools or high schools, but I've never encountered, as a parent of three children, I've never encountered critical race theory being taught in elementary or or middle school or high school even. So that's not really about critical race theory. That's kind of a a really a broader question about how do we want to teach about and think about race in American society. Which we are going to get to. Chris, what was the origin of your concern about critical race theory? Because when I first heard of you, it was because you went to the White House under the Trump administration and attended meetings, and you tweeted about how critical race theory was a focus. And in the New Yorker profile that you had, you said that critical race theory is the perfect villain because its connotations are negative to most middle-class Americans It's academic, divisive, poisonous, elitist, and anti-American. So where, how did you get into this and where did that come from? Well, I think first we should take a step back. And I think there are really two critical race theories that we're talking about. Uh, Professor Banks outlined really uh, the idea of critical race theory in the legal academy in, you know, 1989. But critical race theory is a critical theory, which means that it operates dialectically which means that it's constantly changing and mutating and progressing. And critical race theory, although absolutely it started at Harvard Law School, at other elite legal institutions, has moved dialectically and extended its territory. You can even read in critical race theory an introduction that the critical race theorists themselves say, in many ways, they've been more successful in implementing their ideas in the educational system than in the legal system. There's now a huge body of evidence, critical pedagogy, culturally responsive teaching, et cetera. There are these massive 400-page textbooks called things like critical race theory and education, where they're taking the ideas and the theories and then, like all critical theories, applying them through the praxis or practice to education. And even in just down the streets uh, from Professor Banks in Cupertino, California, not too far from uh, Stanford Law School, They were teaching intersectionality, which is a key component of critical race theory, to third graders, forcing them to deconstruct their racial identities in class according to their, quote, power and privilege. This is- I want to jump in very quickly. I would say that critical race theory, I think, has shifted and changed because I think that that is what a theory would do in response to new ideas and new evidence. I spoke with Kimberly Crenshaw a couple of years ago. She's the person who came up with the concept of intersectionality as part of critical race theory. And it basically argues that people's identities intersect. For instance, I am a Black woman. So I experience the experiences of being Black, but also the experiences of being a woman. And the culmination of that is that I have experiences that my dad might not have as a Black man and my mom might not have as a white woman. Kimberly Crenshaw wrote a paper at the University of Chicago in the late 1980s And when I've had folks who disagree with intersectionality as it's practiced read that paper, they're like, well, that seems sensible. And it seems to me, Chris, that what you're saying in some ways, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, is that there is 
the critical race theory that's the legal academy that Rick just brought up. And then there's critical race theory, the practice that you see in schools. Is that what you're saying? I just want to be clear here. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the summary that Rick laid out, I think, was you know, accurate in my reading. I think those are all really valuable questions. I think those are really key questions. But as you've said, the critical race praxis, the component of the critical theory that is supposed to be applied. And you have to remember that a critical theory is distinguished from a traditional theory because its goal is not merely to observe the world, to reveal the truth, but to actually change the world. Therefore, you have to measure it not only in abstract terms and academic terms, but you actually have to look, well, what is it doing to society? What is it doing in classrooms? What is its impact in practice? And the reason I'm bringing up the example in Cupertino, for example, is really to say it's not only false that critical race theory hasn't made its way into classrooms. I have dozens of stories about it. Um, So I think we need to come up with either we debate them separately, we talk about them separately, or we talk about them together. But the idea that critical race theory isn't in schools, I think, is a myth and not supported by the evidence. But I do want to note, kids exist in a context. They are aware that they are going to school probably either with kids who look very different from them or in a lot of schools in America still with kids who very much look exactly the same as they do. And they may go to one school while all the white kids go to this different school. And they're curious as to why that is. Maybe the question is not necessarily, here are some bad ways to talk about this, but is there a better way to talk about this? Obviously, yeah, I think there is a better way. But I think that there's another kind of bait and switch that I've seen over and over and over from educators where you come up with an example like forcing third graders to deconstruct their racial identities or forcing middle school teachers in Springfield, Missouri to locate themselves on an oppression matrix. And then there's people who say, well, that's not real critical race theory. Real critical race theory has never been tried. And yet there's evidence that is accumulating day by day that when these ideas are applied, they end up with these awful practices that I think all three of us agree should not be in the classroom. So the question, and what I think of as critical race theory, is not to measure it in the abstract, not to say, well, are the abstract ideas good or bad? We can kind of have a formal debate. But actually, I think the obligation, especially in a school setting, is to measure its success by its practical outcomes. And I don't think that you can separate them. Uh, And then whenever I bring up the actual specifics that happen, people back away. You know, my argument would be simply if something is producing negative outcomes or poor practices, maybe the problem is in the theory itself. Maybe the theory that yields bad outcomes is the source of those bad outcomes. But there there are different strands to this discussion of race in the classroom, right? And one strand focuses on identity and is kind of obsessed with people's individual identities and intersectionality and oppression matrices. And I'm not in favor of all of that generally in the classroom, especially for young people. But there's another strand which just focuses on our ability to tell the truth about American society, both past and present. And there the question is whether the prior situation where we don't talk about race, whether there are harms that have resulted from that. And and I would suggest that there are. And even in my own life, for example, and I say this as a law professor now, I was taught as a child that the Civil War wasn't really about slavery. It was about other stuff. 
right? It was about states' rights. And then you flash forward 30 years later, my son is in elementary school in liberal progressive California. And he's taught uh, about the end of slavery and Abraham Lincoln as a great emancipator. And it was such a wonderful thing. And then he's taught about the civil rights era. And he raised a question in his class, well, what happened between slavery and the civil rights era? Like, why didn't ending slavery solve all the problems? And the teacher had omitted mention of lynching, omitted mention of the racial terrorism that actually has shaped the history of our family. And none of that appeared in the curriculum. So that's the sort of thing that is, I think, much more common than the examples you're giving, that we have this willful blindness to aspects of history that are uncomfortable, and that undermines our ability to, to recognize the challenges that we face in a society because we continue to uh, reside within this sort of happy story about progress and freedom and equality and liberty, and to not recognize some of the complications of the story. And, and ultimately, it actually undermines the goals of education, because what we need children to most take from their schooling is the ability to be critical thinkers, right? And they can't be critical thinkers if we are systematically shielding them from some of the unhappy parts of the story. I would make two points. I mean, first, you know, I started my kind of public school education in the late 1980s and then moved forward from there, K through 12 public schools in California. I learned all about the history of slavery, segregation, Jim Crow, Native American genocide, the black codes, et cetera. And I think that's important. I think that's foundational. You have to be taking an honest look at history, a hard look at history, including those enormous injustices. I think that's probably pretty standard. I think if you looked at the K through 12 school curriculum, today in 2021, that you would find all of those as part of the history. I think that's good. Um, but you can do that without critical race theory. I think there's another mutation in the rhetoric where when people say we don't like intersectionality, we don't like deconstructing identities, all of those buzzwords that seem to be creeping into the public education system, we just want to teach honest history. And I think that those are separate things. You know, For example, I had what I think is a kind of comprehensive history of racial injustice in America in public schools. You had, an extraordinary, you, yeah. you had an extraordinary education because I've taught law students here at Stanford Law School who are flabbergasted to learn that racially restrictive covenants were used in Northern California to restrict who could live where. Students arrive at law school and they are unaware of these very basic legal devices of racially restrictive covenants, which typically would bar entry to certain races. And this has shaped our entire nation. And most people actually don't know about that. So it's, I find it hard to believe that they're being taught about that in high school. Are there people advocating very strongly for critical race theory to be taught in schools or is it mostly people advocating against it? Well, I think there's both. The people who are advocating very strongly for critical race theory in K-12 education are teachers unions, the NEA, the largest teachers union in the country. Just this summer endorsed critical race theory at their annual convention. The public school bureaucracies are also very much in favor. Many cases, not in all cases, but in many cases, programs of kind of diversity, equity and inclusion include some of these tenets of critical race theory. And again, even in Professor Banks' uh, kind of home area, the Santa Clara County, the Office of Education has strongly endorsed critical race theory among amidst uh, included in their ethnic studies program, in which they denounce the United States as a, quote, parasitic system based on the invasion of settlers. And they're encouraging teachers to, quote, cash in on kids' inherent empathy in order to radicalize them into critical pedagogies 
and the kind of Frarian notion of revolution. I'm not aware of these particular expressions of this commitment that you're talking about. Chris, you've been very involved in legislation that is attempting to remove this. Yes. This is how I think about this. Is This is what informs my views. I spent years directing a documentary for PBS, public television, in and out of a public housing project in Memphis, Tennessee, in the 38126 zip code. And I kind of often find myself reflecting on that experience, reflecting on the thousands of conversations I had, all of the research that I did, all of the people that I met, and then finding this such an enormous gap between what people told me were their real life concerns in South Memphis, the things that really impacted their life. And clearly in South Memphis, it's the top of the Mississippi Delta. You can feel the legacy of slavery, segregation, institutionalized racism. You can see it almost, it's palpable. So no one would deny or, or even minimize that. But then the solutions that come from critical race theory uh, are what I think are elite-driven and elite-serving solutions. They're things that are very good for Robin DiAngelo selling seminars and Ibram Kendi, also you know, making children's books and self-help manuals, but don't actually solve the problems for the people that I know and met and really admire and care for in South Memphis. Thanks for that, Chris. But let me offer an alternative interpretation, though, which is that the villain here is actually not critical race theory. The villain is actually the set of conditions and the tendencies that gave rise to critical race theory, right? So, for example, we have always been unwilling to address the intertwining of race and class in American society. Uh, we've been unwilling to actually commit to do the things that would bring forth uh, true racial uh, equality. When Brown v. Board of Education was decided, for example, in 1954, the court said you can't bar or require students to go to racially segregated schools, and it pretty much stopped there. Right. And the court declined to do any of a gazillion other things that might have helped to produce racially integrated schools or that might have helped to create more equitable or more effective education nationwide. So the problem that we have in society, I think, is really that we want to imagine that if we make some small tweaks around the edges, that'll produce change, but it rarely does. And that's why race continues to be the problem that it is in American society. So we all have incentives to take the easy way out rather than do the hard work of racial justice, but that's not because of critical race theory. Critical race theory is really meant to illuminate that tendency in all of us so that hopefully we can do better. still collecting your anecdotes for a future COVID-related episode. Have you successfully convinced a vaccine-hesitant person in your life to get the COVID vaccine? Tell me about it in a voicemail by calling 347-915-4324. We might play an excerpt of it on a future episode. If you had more time in the day, would you take a nap, read a book, talk with a friend? When something's important to you, it's easier to make time for it. Therapy can help you decide what matters most. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on your schedule. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com opinion today to get 10% off your first month. 
That's better, H-E-L-P dot com slash opinion. I use the New York Times Games app every single day. I love playing Connections. With Connections, I need to twist my brain to see the different categories. I absolutely love Spelling Bee. Sudoku is kind of my version of lifting heavy weights at the gym. When I can finish a hard puzzle without pins, I feel like the smartest person in the world. It gives me joy every single day. Start playing in the New York Times Games app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash games app. There is a common issue here of like, yes, the performative act of anti-racism has markedly little to do with anti-racism. You haven't eliminated disparities that I witness all the time. That problem, I don't think, would be eradicated by banning critical race theory. Those are kind of two separate problems, right? So if you want to look at the problem, I think the three of us are in agreement on a problem. And I'll, I'll give you an example that illustrates it. Buffalo Public Schools in New York. I did a long report on Buffalo. This is a public school district that has, by fifth grade, only 20% of students are proficient in math and 18% are proficient in reading. I mean, this is a human tragedy. It's a disaster. Um, This is something that should be sending red alarms through our society. But instead of reforming itself, the public school bureaucracy in Buffalo has adopted a, quote, Black Lives Matter curriculum. Uh, that teaches that really the solution is to disrupt the Western nuclear family, to create queer-affirming spaces, to dismantle cisgender privilege, et cetera, et cetera. The kind of catchphrases of popular critical race theory ideology. But the question that I think both of you are asking and I'm asking is, what does this do for the kids who can't read by the end of elementary school? They're I think we in- actually agree on that. Yeah. I, I think we actually agree that that doesn't help the, the kids who can't read. Yeah, this seems less about like critical race theory. I want to get to some of the legislation that you've been working on. You're director of initiatives on critical race theory at the Manhattan Institute. So, Chris, you've got some stakes in the game here. But I want to get into some of the language you've used with regard to wins on this. For instance, an Idaho bill H0377. Mm -hmm. And... You said, uh, last year on Tucker Carlson, I declared a one-man war against critical race theory in public institutions. Today, we have built an army of families, parents, writers, lawyers, activists, and legislators fighting together to defeat this divisive and anti-American ideology. I want to get it because that seems, that sounds, I mean, I, I know we all talk differently to different people, but that sounds very different from your critiques of how this looks in a system where not enough kids are getting up to grade level in reading. That sounds to me about an argument about not whether or not critical race theory is effective or this interpretation, I should say, of critical race theory, but that it's divisive and anti-American. First of all, when you're on a cable television, unfortunately, you have like two minutes to make your case. It's also a, a different audience and a different set of objectives. If you look at the legislation, the legislation in Idaho, for example, that you bring up is quite good. It really just says, very simply, public schools in the state of Idaho cannot compel students to believe uh, that any race is inherently superior or inferior, that anyone should be treated differently on the basis of race, or that any race is inherently oppressive or collectively guilty for historical crimes. And, And again, it's very solid, compelled speech grounds that protect students' First Amendment rights that isn't overly broad. I think it's one of the best state bills. And I find it so strange and almost inexplicable that anyone who really read the language in the bill, uh, should we be compelling students to personally believe 
that one race is superior to another? I think that this all gets into how these laws are interpreted, because this is a part of a series of pieces of legislation. For instance, in Tennessee, it is illegal for teachers to include any material that promotes division between or resentment of a race, sex, religion, creed, nonviolent political affiliation, social class or class of people, which we can all recognize because we are all sensible people that that could be interpreted in any number of ways. Like, how do we engage with this? I'm concerned because I think that this legislation is based in some ways on feelings and how people interpret this information. Rick, do you see a harm? Am I crazy? What's going on here? Yeah, I I think there is a a harm to the legislation. I mean, you know, if you're trying to target the issues that undermine achievement and and shortchange students, uh, this would not be the place to start, right? There'd be lots of other legislation having to do with funding and the how well teachers are trained and so forth that might improve children's education. But one effect of this legislation, which I worry about actually, is that, you know, what we really need in classrooms is we need the very best educators in the world. That's what we need for our nation to thrive. People who are really good educators, they are professionals who want to act autonomously and to be able to exercise their professional discretion and make their own decisions about how they teach and how they do what they do, just as doctors want to be able to make decisions about how they treat patients, right? So there may be a way where having a legislature, which actually doesn't really know much about education, come in and start to mandate what can and cannot happen, that actually is going to turn off the very people that we should be trying to attract to education because those are the people that can help children learn. But isn't that already the status quo? I mean, in every state in the United States, the state legislature uh, mandates the curriculum. The state legislature funds public schools. The state legislature determines what is included and excluded in the classroom. No, no, uh, the, the, I mean, in many cases, these bills are one or two pages. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's yeah, a but, very small addition to provide extra clarity, just to say very simply. Yes and no there in terms in terms of state control, right? So the state does mandate that, you know, students should understand uh, if you're taking physics, right, there's a curriculum for physics or for chemistry. But in terms of whether the teacher performs a certain experiment in chemistry or another experiment in chemistry or highlights one aspect or another... That's left to the teacher's discretion to figure out how to promote knowledge of chemistry and of the scientific method among students, right? And this legislation that we're seeing in some of these states is so broad that it's hard for me to describe it other than, you know, it's meant to terrorize and instill fear in people that if they say the wrong thing, some horrible consequence is going to happen. I mean, I think that this all has to do in many ways with our interpretations. Chris, you've talked about the education that you had that was, in your own telling, very broad and very deep, talking about slavery and Jim Crow and the use of redlining. And at no point, I assume, did that cause you to hate America. And this is what, to me, the debate is really about, is who has authority over public institutions? Is it the bureaucracy? Is it teachers unions? Uh, Is it outside diversity training firms that are able to circumvent the democratic process, to circumvent public will and implement a curriculum really outside of that process? Or is it voters through their state legislators and also voters and and the public through their school boards. And to me, this is a kind of 
very basic democratic function where you're saying public institutions and, and the values that they transmit are determined by the public through their state legislatures. But you're also involved in helping to influence both the public and the state legislatures, correct? Of course, yeah. I mean, that's, again, how the public process works. Uh, public persuasion in support of certain desired outcomes, rallying voters. Ultimately, people can listen to me or not listen to me, just as the same with everyone. But if you can rally the public through public persuasion, and then you have the votes, you have the public pressure, you have the attention of legislators, you can get things done. I, I don't see anything out of the ordinary with that. How much do you think fear plays into this, Rick? There are two major developments. One is we have this extraordinary demographic change as a result of immigration and, and other factors. So we have a demographic change. And then we also have growing economic inequality, which breeds a widespread economic anxiety. And that's abetted by technological advances, which are going to dramatically remake lots of different industries. And people are worried about their future and the future of their children. So when people are so worried and when they're feeling that their group is becoming, you know, marginalized or might no longer be dominant, it's only natural to act with some desperation to try to hold on to what has been. And, and I think that is part of what's going on here, because so many of these legislative responses seem to be, in a sense, solutions in search of a problem. Do we know what the effect on student achievement would be if we were to introduce uh, more discussion of race into the curriculum? As far as I know, no, we, we don't have the answer to that, right? When I was a child growing up, I could imagine that for me and my peers, we might have been well served educationally if we had some information that would help us answer the question of like, well, why do all the black people live in this part of the city rather than that part of the city? Why is it that the schools that the white kids go to actually seem to be newer than the schools that the black kids go to? Why does my father have this job as a laborer where some other white kid's father has some job that seems to pay a lot more? It might be that if you could give kids a way to help make, especially disadvantaged kids, a way to make sense of their world in a way that doesn't cause them to internalize all the bad messages in society, it might be that their academic achievement would improve as a result of changes in curricular materials. I think we should at least see that as an open question. Those are valid questions. I think by the time kids are in high school, that's probably the right age to be asking some of those deeper and more complex questions. I'd have no problem with that. None of the state laws would prohibit that kind of discussion. But I think there's two points. First, uh, the reason perhaps that you hadn't seen it in your time with your kids is that this is all very new. But I think a second and more important point, and I think a, a really uh, foundational point, is that uh, opposition to critical race theory in public schools isn't a racial issue, isn't, I think, as you might have been suggesting, a response to changing demographics, a kind of white resentment. I don't think it's that at all. This is a really broadly multi-ethnic opposition. The argument has been from the political left that this fight against critical race theory is driven by resentful white conservatives that are anxious about the changing demographics of society and losing their social status, when in fact, that's not true. Chris, you brought it up on Fox News, which then got the attention of then President Trump, but then brought this to the mainstream. And so this is something like whether or not you wanted it to be a part of partisan politics. Well, partisan politics just happened to you. We have 
a partisan political system. That's how we decide uh, what happens in our country. That's how our political system functions. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. What I'm saying is that even with the partisan political environment, even with you know, Fox News opposing critical race theory and MSNBC defending critical race theory. The case that I've made with my colleagues has been successful in persuading voters that, quote, critical race theory is a kind of pernicious ideology in our education system that divides people rather than unites people. The case that has been made over the last year, I think, is shifting against critical race theory. And my contention is that the more that people find out what's really at heart with this ideology, the more they oppose it. Rick, I want to go to you for the last word, because I think Chris and I, I I feel as if we have reached a disagreement impasse. But I'm curious, Rick, how should we teach this? How should we teach this, the American story of race and racism? Well, I I think we want the best teachers we can possibly find. and, And we need to really do everything we can to give them the autonomy to devise curricular materials that they think are good. Second point is that the longstanding problem in our society has not been that we focus too much on race, but that we focus too little on race and that we have been unwilling to recognize the centrality of race in American society. So in teaching American history, you should tell that story. What we should not do, and I agree with Chris on this point, is we should not make people feel bad about their identities. We should not stigmatize people. We should not try to indoctrinate children by telling them what to think about contentious issues in society, especially young children, right? So I think we agree on that. But I do worry that, you know, this whole debate about critical race theory is an example of our public discourse and the ways in which our public discourse is lacking, uh, which is that People are forming strong opinions about issues that they don't really know that much about. They're not really staying in their lane. They're trying to express opinions that should really be the domain of professional educators. We don't have much respect for the educators or or give them enough leeway. Uh, And, you know, through it all, and I agree with Chris on this point, the kids who lose are really the disadvantaged students in our nation's most impoverished areas who are disproportionately black and brown. Right. And those kids are the ones who are losing out. But they've been losing out long before people ever started talking about intersectionality or white fragility. And, 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 And I hope and I know we share the hope that we can do right by the children in our society because we are not going to thrive as a nation unless we can put aside all these adult squabbles and all these ideological inclinations and figure out what we need to do to make opportunity as universal as talent. Thank you both for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Chris Rufo is a senior fellow and director of the Initiative on Critical Race Theory at the Manhattan Institute. Ralph Richard Banks is a law professor and co-founder and faculty director of the Stanford Center for Racial Justice. There is absolutely no shortage of stuff to read about critical race theory. Some of the things I recommend are Gene Stefanczyk and Richard Delgado's seminal work, Critical Race Theory and Introduction. The New Yorker profile on Chris Rufo mentioned in this episode, titled How a Conservative Activist Invented the Conflict Over Critical Race Theory. A Manhattan Institute panel from last December titled Critical Race Theory on the New Ideology of Race, featuring both of my guests today. And our previous episode of The Argument on Critical Race Theory with columnist Michelle Goldberg and linguist John McWhorter. If you like this, I think you'll find that illuminating, too. 
You can find links to all of these in our episode notes. The Argument is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Phoebe Lett, Elise Gutierrez, and Pashaka Durba. Edited by Alison Brzezik and Sarah Geis. With original music and sound design by Isaac Jones. Mixing by Carol Saborao and Sonia Herrero. Fact-checking by Kate Sinclair. And audience strategy by Shannon Busta. Special thanks this week to Kristen Lynn. Ready to set off on your captivating journey into the botanical world? NYBG's brand new online education program, Plant Studio, offers bite-sized courses tailor-made for you to pursue your passion as a budding plant person. Guided by professionals, dig into gardening, botany, floral design, landscape design, and more. Grow your skills with online learning your way. Register at nybg.org.